0: Good morning. We are glad you are here. Uh, If you're a visitor with us, we do kind of a privilege to worship with you. We say that every week because we mean it every week. We have this crazy opportunity week in and week out to gather, to go to the Word of God, to know that our God is present with us, that He hears us, He hears our prayers, He hears those songs, and in fact, He answers those prayers and He responds to those songs. And so uh, it's a privilege week in and week out what we get to do. And so if this is your first time with us or the first of a few times We're really glad you're here. This morning, we're going to be in Psalm 119. You can go ahead and turn there if you would like. Um, Let me go ahead and um, comfort you that we will not be covering all 176 verses this morning. So breathe deeply. It'll be okay. We're only going to cover the first few, uh, but we'll be in 119. Let's pray together, and then we'll go to our word. Lord, we come to you now, and we are thankful for this time. You are great and greatly to be praised. We want to do what your word says and, and, uh, and pray for others and pray for others in positions of leadership and pray for other brothers and sisters. And so this morning, I, I want to particularly pray for uh, Paul Blue and Family Fellowship. Uh, I pray for Family Fellowship that you would bless and encourage them in your truth. I pray that they, as they're gathering right now, would be enjoying you. And I pray that you would um, be growing that church, encouraging their leaders. Um, particularly, I pray for Paul. i was thankful to get to serve with him this week and uh, to get to know him a little bit better. And, and I pray that you would bless his ministry. Pray that you would bless his marriage, bless his parenting. I pray that you would bless everything he lays his hand on and, and that he would be an encouragement to others as he communicates your word. Lord, we humble ourselves before you today. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Generally, at Crosspoint, we preach verse by verse, expositorily or expositionally. This means that we believe that the best thing that your pastors can do for you is to take a book of the Bible and just work through it week after week, verse by verse, year after year, not skipping over the hard parts or the confusing parts, not rushing anything. We believe at Crosspoint that that approach is far more fitting and effective than simply letting each pastor choose a topic from week to week. Frankly, I'd be all over the map and it'd be very hard to follow. Preaching in this manner allows God to set the agenda for our Christian community, so that's what we normally do at Crosspoint, but this morning is not normal because we have, from time to time, what we call a standalone sermon, where you're not going to be preaching for two or three weeks on a, on a small series of verses, but you just have a standalone sermon, and that's what I'm tasked with today is the, the standalone sermon. What do we do with a standalone sermon? Where do we go? We're used to going verse by verse. Well I was brainstorming with Ben about what to preach this Sunday, and he casually mentioned spending some time in Psalm 119. And I thought, you know, it would be very fitting to utilize a standalone sermon to explain and to consider why we treasure the Word of God so much that for 15 years now at Cross Point Fellowship, we preach it verse by verse, week after week, year after year after year. So if you haven't turned to Psalm 119, go ahead and turn there, and as you do so, I want to give you a little background. It is the longest psalm with 176 verses, but it's not just a long song of 176 verses, but it's very detailed in its structure. This psalm that we're just going to be looking at the first part today is like a really disciplined love song. It's a song of deep and profound affection, almost like a love song. The author who we believe to be David, but we're not completely sure, takes meticulous time to utilize each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and then utilizes eight verses at a time for each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet to express his deep love for God's word. If that's confusing, let me give you an illustration. This would be like writing a love song to your lady using all of the letters of the alphabet. A is for ankles, and yours are nice, and so on and so forth. Now, Valentine's Day is coming up, and I don't want any of you guys to steal that because I've been working on that this week. (laughs) A is for ankles, and yours are nice. This worshiper of God in Psalm 119 is praising him through the delight of his word. Today, we're going to be looking at just the first eight verses, so let's read those together. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. As we listen to the psalmist, we hear a guy who's like, Man, I want to hear what God says, and I want to do it. And he loves every different way in which God communicates his will through his word. And so there's a lot of treasuring in these first eight verses. That's why the title of this morning's sermon is just simply treasuring. We see this guy treasuring a lot of things and explaining how he treasures it in different ways. So we're going to look at three this morning. Treasuring God's word, treasuring holiness, and treasuring the God of the word. That's kind of our outline and map for the morning. So first, treasuring God's word. If you notice as we read, God's word is described through the use of many different words in these verses. It's referred to as the law, his testimonies, his ways, his precepts, his statutes, his commandments, and his righteous rules. Now, that's a lot of different ways to say God's word, but he's doing this on purpose. And we're going to try to unpack it a little bit to figure out what he's doing here. To kind of give you a reference, think about that love song that the man might write for the woman. It would be like saying, uh, this song is to my wife, my best friend, my sister in Christ, the mother of my children, the daughter of Janetta and Richard, the sister of so-and-so, the friend of so-and-so. He's being intentionally thorough, and it's a picture of being intentionally complete. So I'm going to ask you to do something right now that I don't think I've ever asked anyone to do during a sermon. I want you to kind of put your pens down and not take notes on the next little bit. Because we're talking about poetry. We're talking about a song. When you go to enjoy a song, you don't just say, you don't, if someone says, oh, have you heard this new song by so-and-so? You don't say no and turn it on and get out your notebook and say, all right, let's write this down. You just listen. You, just, you turn it up and you sit back and you enjoy it. And if you like it, you put it on repeat. We all have, back in the day, there were you know, eight tracks, tape decks, records, and CDs, and there's a thing called repeat. And you would use the repeat if you liked the song. You'd just listen to it over and over and over. Or an album, you'd put it on shuffle. Surprise me. I love the whole thing. Just surprise me with a shuffle. So this morning, as we go to Psalm 119, I just want you to take a minute, not for the whole sermon, but for the next little part. I'll tell you when to pick your pens back up, to just kind of Listen. He uses these different words to describe God's word as a song, as a poem, where he's inviting you in with him to enjoy it in the same manner. So when he says the law, the law reminds us that Revelation is not simply something interesting for us to study, but it's for our obedience. So when he says law and he's holding it high, he's also holding high the reality and the call to to be obedient to what God says. It's not just interesting, but we're called to be obedient. When he says testimonies, these testimonies are a witness, which make it dependable and true. The word regularly holds high, the dependable and true witness. Precepts is a word that was often used of officers and of overseers who were called to look closely into a situation. So when he says precepts, he's pointing to these particular instructions of the Lord that show us that the Lord is one who cares about details. He's not real loosey-goosey when it comes to obedience. When he says statutes, these statutes speak of the binding force and the, permanent of, the permanence of Scripture almost as though it is etched in stone. When you hear statute, that's what he's talking about. A witness forever. When he says commandments, we see an emphasis on the authority of what is said, that we have a God who has the right to tell us how to live. And he's so so good with that that he's writing a song about it. God, you have the right to tell us how to live. That's what I want to do. That's a song. Ordinances emphasize judgments and communicate the standard of fair dealing with other people. So God's saying, um, I, I give you ordinances so you know how to act with one another. And the psalmist says, yeah, yes. I mean, the, I, I've shared this example so many times. But A guy named Chad Spear was here when Crosspoint started. And we, we had them over for dinner and um, it was our, like, Lindsay and I just moved into the first house we ever had. We still had our grill um, that was, like, I'd just taken it out of the box and put it together. So we're newlyweds, and we have people, and we're, like, being adults for the first time. And we're cooking for people. And I just, I just said, I don't know what to cook. So I just took all the meat in the freezer, and I cooked it for us and the Spears and the Holtz. And, and it was a ridiculous pile of meat for six people. It really was overkill. I have a tendency to do that when I cook, because I grew up with boys, and we just mom would just pile food on the table, and it would disappear. But then when you do that with your guests, there's usually leftovers. So uh, what we did was we made all this meat. I didn't know at the time that Chad's wife, Samantha, was a vegetarian. So my bad on that, okay? So all, I don't even think I cooked any vegetables. And so, but Chad apparently, because of that, didn't get the amount of meat intake that he would regularly prefer. And so, as he's ta- eating these pork chops and eating like, like some, some steak and eating whatever else, that sausage, whatever else I threw in there, at one point, Chad just pushes back from the table and says, This is so good. I want to write a song about it. <laughs> and... And every time I go to the Psalms, I think about Chad saying that because that's what the psalmist is doing. He's saying, statutes and precepts, oh, that's good, I want to write a song about it. That's what he's doing. So the word, when we see the word of God, it's a general term for embracing all of God's truth. When we see promises, they point to fulfillment. But properly defining all of the different words is not our goal this morning. That's not the point of a poem. The Psalms... Draw us in like any other good song does. When you read the Psalms, that's what, they're, that's what the aim is. Not that you just study the words and define the, the words in their original language so that you can outline it. It's so that you enjoy it. The goal of the author is that the words would resonate in your heart so that you could sing them as your own. That's what we're doing when we pray the Psalms and we read the Psalms. The, the, somehow that song that someone else wrote, they would resonate so clearly with you, you'd be able to say, that's my song. Our story is the story of a people. You've heard that over and over again. So you could hear Peter at Pentecost saying, you know, when we were drawn out, when we were called to be God's own people, you say, that's my story. And so it is with the Psalms. That's my Psalm. One of the most popular love songs ever written was written in 1966 by Percy Sledge. Are we all familiar with Percy? I don't actually think he wrote it, but he sang it. When a man loves a woman. I mean, come on. We all know that. I I was expecting everyone to join in, and we just finished the song together because it's so familiar. When a man loves a woman. When a man loves a woman, can't keep his mind on nothing else. He changed the world for the good thing he's found. If she is bad, he can't see it. She can do no wrong. Turn his back on his best friend if he put her down. Like other love songs, when the time comes early on in life and you fall in love, and then you hear that song, it's like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> it makes sense now. You're sitting in the car, and, and you just drop your girlfriend or your boyfriend off or whatever, and you're, you're in love, and you hear that song, you're like, the clouds part, and you're like, I get it, Percy. Percy. When a man, I get, she, can do, she can't do anything wrong. I love her so much. It invites you in. It's like the clouds have parted, and that song might as well be your song. You might as well have written that song yourself, because those could be your words. You identify with it so much. And that's part of the reason that love songs are so popular uh, in their design. Well, in the same way, the Psalms draw us in, that's their intention. Ideally, someone else's words and affections and treasures become our words and affections and treasures as we sing along with the psalmist. What the psalmist confesses, I confess. What the psalmist commits to, I commit to. So here, humbly, soberly, we have to ask the question, is this how you view the Word of God? Are you regularly so enamored with it, so, so um, wrapped up in it that you want to write a song about it? Is this how you view it? Do you hear the psalmist and agree that there is no greater blessedness on planet earth than doing exactly what God says while you're here? He says, wholeheartedly, diligently, steadfastly, uprightly. Are you feeling it? Is that how you view the word of God? When you read the Ten Commandments, are you like, yes. Song, are you there this morning? One of our problems in America is our love-hate relationship with the law. If you watch the news, it takes about two seconds to realize America has a love-hate relationship with the law. We tend to only like or prefer the laws which we perceive to be directly benefiting us and we do not like and we do not prefer the laws that simply get in our way. For example. If, theoretically, you were to get pulled over in the church parking lot for doing 60 miles an hour, I'm not going to say any names, but there's more than one up in here. (laughs) If you were to get pulled over in the church parking lot for doing 60 miles an hour in this 50-mile-an-hour zone right here of 1570, you might say, that's a stupid law. There's nobody even out here. All I see is five lanes of freedom, and I'm getting pulled over, we're going 60 when it should be 60, but it's 50 and that's dumb. Did I get an amen? Yeah, I got an amen. I heard that. (laughs) But it's so interesting because if that same person is trying to pull out of the parking lot at 5 o'clock and everybody's doing 60 miles an hour in a 50, then that same person's like, well, don't these people know the speed limit's 50? (laughs) Everyone needs to slow down and follow the law so that I can get out of this parking lot alive. It's this love-hate relationship. The left lane is for passing, guys. <laughs> it's for passing. And incidentally, like, if you're doing 10 under the posted speed limit, I'm trying to pass. I love that law. Get out of the way. I was, I was uh, exiting the highway recently. And apparently, the wonderfully nice, encouraging gentleman in the minivan didn't know that you yield to the ramp, guys. Yield to the ramp. That's the law. So he didn't yield to me. And you know, Christians, we're not going to like do hand signals or yell, but we'll look at someone, right? <laughs> I'll I'll stare at you. I will stare at you hard. I'll stare hard at you. And so um, I'm trying to exit, and this guy in his minivan is 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 not yielding. So I speed up, and he speeds up. Now you've not you broke you broke the law and you made me mad, right? So. Um, he speeds up, so then what do I do? I do the hard slow down, whip around, come on his passenger side, and I'm staring at him. And he gave me a hand gesture that seemed to indicate that he thought I was number one. (laughs) And I said, I am number one, because I know the law, which is you should have yielded to me. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. The kids were in the car. It was a sweet lesson on hand gestures. So, um, So the law is this thing that we have sort of a love-hate relationship with. If we see and perceive, oh, that directly benefits us, well, then yay, we like that law. But then if it gets in our way at all, all of a sudden it's stupid, and whoever these legislators are who put it together have no brain, and they should just listen to us. A love-hate relationship. Beyond that here in the States, if we find laws that we really dislike, we we have the ability as, as citizens to challenge laws and challenge legislations, even get some laws changed or thrown out. That's America. The problem comes when we impose that kind of thinking on God's word. It's very easy to do. We, we, we impose the same thinking. That's beneficial. That's not beneficial. That's stupid. That's unrealistic on God's word. For example, I know that one of the Ten Commandments says, don't lie. But in this situation, lying would benefit me more. Lying would save me some money. Lying would make this tax write-off this big when it was really only this big. And so we reason through it the way we do as Americans, and we say, you know what, that law is is not beneficial to me, God, giver of the law. And so, you know, lying, it says don't lie, but I'm going to say that in this situation lying would be more beneficial to me, so I don't like that law. And we can do it with all of them. In our arrogance and in our short-sightedness, we look at God's word and we wrongly conclude that maybe some of this benefits us less than other parts. We, we, we read through books and say, oh, I, I mean, I've heard people, I like the New Testament. The Old Testament's boring. Well, the New Testament doesn't make any sense without the Old Testament. We, we, we look at it and we, and we even in the Psalms, ooh, I like these Psalms, but I don't, I don't like those other Psalms about judgment. That's not good for me. Really, we're not allowed to pick and choose. And the reason that we're not allowed to pick and choose is this. All of this benefits us completely. We don't dismiss even an iota of it. It's all completely beneficial. So much so that it overwhelms the psalmist where he's like, I'm going to write a song about it. It's so good. It's so good. I want to remember this. I hear God tell me what to do and you know what I want to do? I want to do it. I don't want to look for a reason not to do it. All of the word is completely beneficial to all of us. The very nature and existence of God's law and God's precepts means that God is saying to you, you're not allowed and you are not able to decide what is beneficial to you. So I give you my word. Like as you hold the word in your lap right now, that's God saying, you're not allowed to just try to wing it. You're not allowed to just try to figure it out. You're not allowed to even decide what is right and wrong. I love you, and so I give you my word. The nature of its existence proves that we cannot define what is beneficial and what is not beneficial. Our view of ourselves and our our situations and our circumstances is not at all accurate when we do not view it through the lens of this word. And not just part of this word, but all of this word. It should be treasured completely or not at all. That's how we handle God's word. That's how we let God's word handle us. Which brings us to our second point this morning. So the first, we see the psalmist treasuring God's word, really treasuring it. But then we see the psalmist within the treasuring of God's word, almost this natural extension is treasuring holiness. The psalmist clearly treasures doing all that God says, keeping it diligently. The psalmist says walking in, keeping seeking after God's commands, praising, learning, and fixing your eyes on all of the commandments is a treasure, and it's a privilege, and it's the only way that leads to holiness. When you do it, it leads to holiness, but there's no other way to lead to holiness, right? It's like there's a path. We go to to the Word, and that's, that's what leads to holiness, and that's what it does, but without it, we won't get there. We won't stumble into holiness. That's not the way this life works. I meet with a couple of guys on Tuesday mornings, and we showed you this catechism book last week, and we put some more out on the table. They're free for the taking. We want to encourage you to walk with your family through catechisms. If you don't know what that is, a catechism is simply a way to help memorize the truths of God's word. And there's a system in here. It has some some background, some verses, and then it has a question and an answer, and a question and an answer. And so I meet with these guys on Tuesday mornings. And what we have found is that the case with the catechisms is the same case as with the Word. If we're not really in it, we're not going to lead our families in it. Like if we sit week after week and it's like, yeah, I I just didn't, there wasn't any time. There wasn't any time to spend uh, in the Word with my family. It's like, no, you're an idiot. Um, I love you and I'm going to hold you accountable. That's why we're all here. Or maybe I'm the idiot on a particular Tuesday. Most of the time, and so um, what, what we say is, no, 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 that's not true. In fact, if you're if you're not treasuring it yourself, you're just simply not going to lead your family in it. So what we've done is we've started memorizing these catechisms, and I'm on number seven. Happy to say, that's about five or six further than I've ever made it before. So I'm on seven, and I'm and I'm happy with that. But it was interesting that this week's catechism asks and answers a question directly related to Psalm 119. Because we're listening to the psalmist, and we want to buy into what he's saying. Yeah, the law is good. That's good. And so the, the catechism question that we work through is, go ahead and put the question up there. What does the law of God require? Like, if you're buying into that, yeah, that's a good song. I want that song to be mine. You better ask what, what, it, what it requires of you, right? What does the law of God require? It's a fitting question if I'm supposed to sing this song with this guy. And the answer is very sobering. Here's our answer. Personal. This is what the law of God requires. personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done. And what God commands should always be done. I'm going to read that last part one more time to make sure we all got it. By by the way, you should be taking notes at this time. I forgot to tell you to pick up your pen. This is be a great time to write it down. The last part says, "What God forbids should never be done. That's the requirement of the law. And what God commands should always be done." Do you roll out of bed in the morning thinking like that? Always and never are strong words. I had a joke with my wife the other day that every time, it's a, it's a miracle, every time I go to our coffee pot, our Keurig, it always needs water in it. And, uh, and, I, and I looked at her, I said, you never refill this coffee pot. She said, that is not true. And I go, never and always. I was, was being dramatic because those are big words, right? Never and always, that's pretty definitive, right? Never and and always so do you roll out of bed thinking like that here's my fear i fear that many of us begin our day thinking i'll do my best kind of ho hum when it comes to holiness i'll give it a try i mean god doesn't expect me to really only do what he commands and surely he doesn't expect me to to never do what he forbids i mean we live we're in this world i mean how could i never do what he forbids and do, I mean, do you roll out of bed? What are your thoughts when you're beginning your day? Or worse, maybe you begin your day without thinking about holiness at all. Here's an important point for us to consider from Psalm 119 this morning. The grace of God in Christ was never meant to lower the bar for your personal holiness. The grace of God in Christ was never meant to lower the bar for your personal holiness. That's convicting to me. It's easy to presume upon God's grace, right? It's easy to, to make presumptions and just say, well, I'm, a, I'm just going to do my best, but, um, but you know, God, God covers my, my sins. And so if I sin, I sin, and God covers it. That is not the way that we approach life. The bar for personal holiness was never meant to be lowered. If we do not treasure God's word, we will never treasure holiness. Work backwards. If, if you don't care about holiness... You're you're rightly or you're likely um, not treasuring the word of God properly. But when we have spent time in the Word, and we've listened to the preaching of the Word, and we've read through it, and we've meditated on it, even in the watches of the night, as the psalmist says, then we will begin to see that holiness, in fact, is a treasure. Guys, holiness is a treasure because it brings us closer to God. The opposite of holiness is sinfulness. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from one another. Like a little boy, though, who who wants to be like his father, who who wants to emulate his father and and like what his dad likes and talk the way that his dad talks and, and wears the same similar clothes that his dad wears, so it is with us and our Heavenly Father. We want to look like him. When people look at us in holiness, we want them to see our God. It brings us closer to God, and incidentally in Christ, it brings us closer to one another. That sin that separates us begins to go out from us because we are moving in holiness. That is holiness. We should treasure holiness so much so that we count it a privilege to begin every day saying, Today, in Christ, my aim today is to always do what God commands and to never do what God forbids. Now let's move to our third point and address what, what maybe you might be creeping in, some, have some thoughts creeping in right now, like um, always and never, they, they are strong words. Can I even faithfully say that? Is it stupid for me to start my day like that? I don't know if I buy into that yet. And, and so here, here's the third point. We treasure God's word, and in doing so we treasure holiness. And the main point of all that is treasuring the God of the word. Treasuring the God of the word. Some have, have accused Psalm 119 of idolatry. Some have stated that the author, when you read through this, and you get to you know, all of these different 22 uh, verses with, with eight verses within each, and just this high, high ex- exaltation of the word, they're saying, you know what? The author could be guilty of idolatry because the author seems to love the word more than the God of the word. The obvious concern with such a focus on the word, and on the law, is that it can produce people who change their behavior but miss the gospel. And I, and I want to point that out this morning. We need to be very careful as we're talking about, man, we want to, with the psalmist, say, I want to do exactly what he says, but moralism is not the gospel. Moralism is not the good news. To be clear, uh, it's much greater than moralism. Mark Devers suggests, he says, moralism produces sinners who are potentially better behaved, that is a really good definition. Moralism produces sinners who are potentially better behaved. That's what, that's what, we, what happens when we just aim at behavior modification with our children. Rather than you know, holiness, we're just aiming at you know, stop doing that stuff that's bad. And, and we can miss the gospel altogether. And so if we're aiming towards just moralism, just do what it says, guys. That produces sinners who are just potentially better behaved. The gospel of Christ transforms sinners into adopted sons and daughters of God. That is the good news. The good news isn't, go do this stuff and you'll feel better. The good news is the gospel that in Jesus Christ, you were made sons and daughters of God. The church can never evade, accommodate, revise, or hide the law of God. We don't need to stray from it or put it away. Indeed, it's the law that shows us our sin and makes clear our inadequacy and our total lack of righteousness. It's nearly impossible to talk about the law of God without turning to Galatians 3:24. So, if you want to turn with me, we're just going to read the one verse, but Galatians 3:24 is an important place to go when we're talking about the law. It's real short, and it says this. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. I'm going to read it again. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. This morning, go ahead and turn back to Psalm 119. This morning, here's what we have to understand with this. The law cannot impart life. The law cannot justify you. Christians should not find their identity in the law, but you should still love it. Okay? That's what's tricky about talking about the law. It's not going to save you. It's not your identity. But just like the psalmist, you should still love it. You should treasure it because it brings us closer to the God who has given us the law. It's a tutor that leads us to Christ, not so that we can then abandon it, but so that we can appreciate Christ's perfect fulfillment of it. If you understand what Christ, if you don't understand the law, you don't understand that Christ fulfilled it perfectly. It would be like me telling you something that someone did, but you don't understand what that thing even was, it don't it won't matter to you. But if you understand that law and you understand what it calls us to and you know that Christ fulfilled it perfectly, that draws you closer to Christ, a tutor that leads us to Christ, not so that we can abandon it, but so we can appreciate Christ's perfect fulfillment of it. As those justified through faith in Christ, we still treasure holiness, and it cannot be rightly treasured without God's word. Back in Psalm 119, I think if we look a little more closely, we will see that the psalmist's aim is not just to glorify the word of God as much as it is to glorify the God of the word. Now, I'm going to read this out loud, want I'm going to do it with some emphasis, because I want you to see what, where the psalmist is aiming. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways could be steadfast in keeping your statutes, God. Then I will not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all of your commandments. I will praise you. You with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. This psalm does not miss God. It is all about God. The psalmist loves God, and he's expressing this love of God through a love of the Word. As we join in with the psalmist, we treasure God's Word. We treasure personal, perfect, and perpetual holiness. And above all, we treasure the God of the Word. They are inextricably linked. You cannot say you treasure God and dismiss his word. As we prepare to take the supper this morning, I want to look at two phrases in this psalm. Verse 6 says, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I shall not be put to shame. Why does it say that? And then in verse 8 it says, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. In these two statements about not being put to shame and not being utterly forsaken, what we find in the psalm from the psalmist is a very welcome mix of two things. Write these down in your notes. We see resolution but but complete dependence upon God. Resolution and complete dependence upon God. Sometimes we act like dependence upon God doesn't doesn't include res- like being resolute, firm, in what we're going to do and how we're going to obey. Sometimes we act as like, well, I depend on God, so you we know, will just hope for the best. That is not the way that it works. We see firmness, we see resolution, and we see dependence. The psalmist has, has known shame. He, said, he, he talks about shame, and the reason that the psalmist has known shame is because the psalmist has known sin. We can certainly identify with the psalmist. Sin brings shame, and when the sin is gone, the reason for our shame is banished. Hopefully, some of you sitting here have have been encouraged in your lives by actually putting to death the deeds of the flesh, by actually putting sin away. And some of you, I, I would think if I asked for it, you could share testimonies about the freedom that comes with that sin being put away. The sin is gone, so the source of our shame is banished. Some of us are so gripped with sin that the shame is palpable. Guys, I'm I'm hoping that this moment of this sermon is is a very honest moment for you, where you can be honest with yourself and honest with your Lord. Because I believe that some of us sitting here are so gripped with sin that the shame is palpable. Some of us are so gripped with the sin in our lives that the notion of being freed from it seems impossible. And I think if some of us are honest, we're, we're addicted to things, and we're given to ways of thinking, and we, we entertain things like anxiety, not realizing it's pride, and, and we slight people, and we speak ill, and we do these things that are sin, and, and I think if some of us are honest, we've become cynical about holiness. But ask the question, have you become cynical about holiness? Do you read what God tells us to do and kind of, well, it's not the world I live in. Is, it? is that what you do? No, I don't know. Sure, yeah, we'll do that. And we, we become cynical about holiness. Some of, us has, some of us have this view of Jesus that's like this weird unbiblical view where it's like, man, I'm really, really thankful for Jesus because me and holiness, we do not get along. So you're just presuming upon the riches of his kindness. You're just presuming upon God like, oh, I'm so thankful that he will cover my sins so that I can keep sinning? That is not the gospel. That is not the good news. That's horrible news. Scripture says if someone tells you that, you should have nothing more to do with them. You have elders who guard this flock and guard the word because of that kind of cynicism that creeps in. But if you're sitting there with it, I want you to realize that you can perpetuate that kind of thinking if that's how you're living. If you're thinking, man, I've struggled with this sin my whole life. I give way to the solicitation of the flesh, just like Esau. Give me the red soup. Why? Because it's red. It's what I want when I want it. Are you cynical about holiness? If this is you, I want you to spend some time this morning confessing your sins to God and believing what the psalmist believes. Let it be your song. Believe what the psalmist believes, that the Holy Spirit can renew in you the image of the God in whose likeness you were created. You can look more like God. You can't be God. But in Christ, we can be drawn in. That's what holiness is. Sanctification is an entire life of being made more like Jesus. We should not be cynical about that. As the psalmist cries out to God in humble dependence, forsake me not utterly. You can hear the psalmist just as he's writing this song. You can see a psalmist saying, this is my song, but just right here is my sin. It crouches at the door and it wants to own me. And I know it's there, so God, do not utterly forsake me. Like, if you don't understand that, that that doesn't even make sense. It's this song about the greatness. And then at the end, do not utterly forsake me, exclamation point. What is the psalmist talking about? Well, he's talking about his fear of being left alone with his sin. And it's something that all of us should fear. Guys, I'm serious. I believe that today, through the word, by God's power, as the Holy Spirit moves, that there will be people today who are freed from sin that you've been enslaved to for far too long. I'm not trying to just preach some revival and get all excited. But guys, that's what God does. He frees you from sin. He frees you from that slavery. And he draws you close to himself. So much so that you can be like the psalmist who says, I can't help but sing to you, my God, you're so good. God, when you tell me what to do, that's the best thing for me to do. So fight against the cynicism. Cry out with the psalmist, forsake me not utterly, God. I do not want to be left alone with my sin. So should every sin in this room be confessed, and every sinner entrust themselves to God, Tremble at the thought of being left alone with your sin while rejoicing in the freedom that exists in Jesus Christ. As we distribute the elements, I want you to spend time being honest about your sin and crying out to God with the psalmist. If you don't agree with the psalmist, if you look at that and say, I don't feel that way, tell God. Say, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. God, I need you. God, I, I don't go to God and say, you know what, I'm going to change all this today. I got this. Tomorrow, God, you're going to love me more than you do today. Don't do that. As we distribute the elements, I want you to be honest about your sin with God so that we can treasure his word, so that we can treasure holiness, and so that we can treasure, treasure him. Let's pray. Lord, you are very good to us. I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the power of it. I'm thankful that none of us sitting here have to simply just continue walking in shame and walking in sin. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. I pray that as, as we continue in song and as we distribute the elements, Lord, my prayer is that your people would be made more holy through the confession of sin and by receiving this Holy Spirit and by moving in likeness. Lord, we're completely dependent upon you, and we're thankful that we can be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you hear the psalmist and, and you want to join in with the psalmist, and you're feeling resolute right now and determined, um, you'll, you'll meet opposition likely within the hour. You, you'll go to lunch. and The feeling you have right now may not be as strong when your belly's full, or when you're tired, or when you want to nap. So there really is uh, not a more fitting song than what we just sang, that God's word is steady. It, it, it does not waver. You, you can depend on God. Don't, don't depend on you. Don't take this message and be a moralist. Don't do it. That's a big, big possibility today. Don't leave and say, I'm going to do that. i got the will to do it. I'm going to do it. Okay, your God is very good, and he walks with you, and he wants to be close to you. So be completely dependent upon God. That's what the supper is. That's what we're doing when we're taking this supper. In Corinthians it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And I want you to hear if there's anything in this this instruction that sounds like what was written by the psalmist so many years before. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also we took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's this looking back, but there's, a, there's an anticipation that Jesus is coming back. That's, that's a big part of the good news for the Christian. We don't believe that this is all that there is. So if it takes work to endure in this and remain holy, we will do that. We'll have the fortitude because we believe that Jesus is coming back. And he says, whoever, therefore, because of that, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks without judgment on himself. So apparently, the psalmist's encouragement towards holiness isn't simply a good idea or an encouragement, it's a requirement. If you take this and say, Ooh, I need this because I'm going to do some sinning this week, you're missing the point. If you say, Ooh, I need the body of Jesus and I need the blood of Jesus because I have no doubt that I am going to fail. You're approaching your day and your week and your life the wrong way. You drink judgment on yourself if you're cynical about holiness. So it's a fitting encouragement and a fitting command beyond an encouragement for us this morning to examine ourselves, to take the supper the right way. It is sober. It is very sober because it means complete dependence upon God. Human beings don't always like that. But that's where we're at this morning. So, in light of what Christ has done, and in anticipation of his return, as you examine yourselves, take and eat. Take and drink. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue in worship, as we continue in giving, really, Lord, as we continue in examining ourselves and considering... If we're trying to emulate our Holy Father or not, um, Lord, I, I pray for honesty today, and I'm God, I'm just so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful that we're not talking about some pipe dream or some, some uh, unrealistic possibilities, Lord. I'm thankful for what you've done for us in Christ. I'm thankful that we're washed, that we're made new, that we're clean, that, that, Lord, when you see us, you see Christ's righteousness, and when you see us, our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. I'm thankful for that reality. Now, I pray that we would live in that reality and quit allowing shame to creep in because we keep giving way to the solicitation of the flesh. Lord, I do pray for holiness, but I don't just pray for holiness for its own sake, but for your glory, that your bride, the local church, would be beautiful. We continue to worship. Help us to do so wholeheartedly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.